Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bible, awesome, because it's not on the screen today. But if you have your Bible, wonderful, you can follow along, but I'm going to read it out loud. We are walking through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. We're taking our sweet time, and uh, we're asking God just to speak to us, and um, it's good to just walk through the Bible and let God teach us some wonderful things. And so uh, last week, we were uh, talking about the baptism of Jesus, which was a pretty incredible moment. We talked a lot about John the baptizer, and, uh, and today this is a continuation after that happened. And so Matthew 4, and we're going to read the first 11 verses and talk about it today. So here we go. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. And uh, the temper, uh, the tempter, the temper, the temper came out of Jesus. He was hangry. And uh, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the, the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, uh, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, uh, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord God, your God to te- the, the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and you worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan. Uh, that's not like you go, Satan. Um, it's go, get out of here, beat it, kick rocks. Uh, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This, uh, like I said, this takes place right after the baptism of Jesus. You have this beautiful moment where the heavens open up, and God audibly says, this is my beloved son in whom whom I'm well pleased. And so we ended with heaven opening up, and here we have hell opening up. And, uh, and the Bible says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led by the Spirit for this to happen, which, which would infer that there was purpose behind this whole experience. There was a the reason, there was a purpose, there was some sort of, you know, cosmic um, spiritual reason for this to happen. And, and I think it's important to understand, and I was just working on this this week, praying about it, and I think this, this uh, idea came to my mind and, and I thought it would be important to talk about. The, there's two things that motivate everything that Jesus does. From the time he arrives, his life, his ministry, everything he does, everything that he says, the decisions he makes, there's these two forces driving everything and uh and those two things are his heart desire obedience to fulfill the will of god he is he's here to do the will of god and then also uh, at the same time everything jesus does 
Everything that he says is for you. Everything. It is with you in mind. And those two priorities are, are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're, they're very much intertwined. I want to share this. I'm going to bounce over to Hebrews a few times today. And uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 says, Behold, I have come to do your will. So there's, there's the one priority, right? I've come to do your will. And what is that will? He takes away the first in order to establish the second. So there's, there's what the will of God is. What does that even mean? By this uh, will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He, his, he, I've come to do your will. What is that will? I fulfill the old covenant. I fulfill the law. I fulfill the demands, the spiritual demands, the, the demands of the law, being righteous, being, uh, living in right standing. And then I've come to establish a new covenant. Uh, this is a new covenant built uh, under grace in, in the finished work of Christ. And so those two things are connected. I've come to do your will. What is the will of God? To usher in a new covenant for your people. It's all wrapped up. So Jesus has come to do the will of God, and all of that affects us and is for us. And so um, what we're going to look at through the walking through these verses today is the motivation of these two priorities on display uh, as Jesus endures and how he responds to each one of these tests. And so he, uh, first of all, he walks into the wilderness in a, in a vulnerable state. You see Jesus at a vulnerable state, and, and what that means is he is both alone, and, uh, and so the, he, is, he doesn't have his friends yet, uh, his disciples, he has not recruited them at this point, he does towards the end of this chapter, and, uh, or starts anyway, and, uh, and so he is alone, he's by himself, and he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, so he is weakened, hungry, uh, he is, he is, he, he's at a weakened state, he's a vulnerable state, and uh, what fasting is, just to give us kind of a, a good working definition, I, we've all kind of heard of it, uh, people do intermittent, intermittent fasting as sort of a, uh, a dietary plan, health uh, plan, um, kind of a diet, but this is something more spiritual than that, and uh, what fasting is, biblically speaking, is, is denying your flesh. It is doing something, choosing to go without something, oftentimes food, uh, but choosing to kind of uh, to, to deprive your flesh of something that it wants and, and craves and, and even obsesses over in order to take that time and that focus to put it on something spiritual. So we're denying the flesh in order to focus on something spiritual. And, uh, and last week, we talked about this beautiful moment that we'll get to again in a few weeks, but uh, this beautiful moment where Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, is what they call it in the Bible, but he is with his, his guys, Peter, James, and John, and he encounters Elijah, he encounters Moses, and it's this very you know, epic event, and, uh, and, and there's some correlation. We talked about even John the Baptist. There's some tie-ins with Elijah imagery-wise. There's some tie-ins and references to Moses and so there's a lot of connection between really the law of God represented Moses, the, the prophets of God represented in Elijah, culminating to Christ. 
And so both Elijah and Moses famously fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is, this is what they call a callback. And so there is some uh, deep historical references here. And so anyway, Jesus goes in this vulnerable state, and uh, that's when the, the enemy decides to interfere. His divide-and-conquer approach is, is his M.O., and it's familiar to Genesis chapter 3, where we see, of course, the Garden of Eden. The enemy shows up. He gets uh, Eve off to herself, divides and conquers, and, and then he starts attacking a relationship, trust, connection between Eve and God. And that's exactly what he starts picking apart with Jesus. He starts attacking identity and connection with God with Jesus himself. And so uh, in, you find in, in, uh, in John chapter 10 a description of the enemy and his M.O. And the Bible says that he's come to still kill and destroy to steal you away, kill, your, kill your, your, your relationship, kill your potential, destroy your life, destroy your future. That's his M.O. And so there is this familiar divide and conquer that we see uh, uh, mirrored from the Garden of Eden in this same instance here in Matthew 4. And, and the question is to Eve, did God tell you you couldn't eat from any of these trees? They're all pretty nice and beautiful. Is that how God is? Is he's like, don't eat? Uh, don't eat from any of these trees. And Eve's like, no, he didn't say that, just not that one. And then the enemy says, well, he doesn't want you to eat from that one because if you did, you become smart, all-knowing, all-powerful like God. He's, he doesn't want you to become like him. So it's picking apart that trust and that relationship between Eve and the Father. And so this is what the enemy says to Jesus and the first tempt, temptation that he throws out there. He says, hey, uh, if you are the Son of God, questioning his identity, but also questioning his relationship with God. If you are his son, if you guys are really connected, if he really loves you, if you guys are really tight, then command these stones to become bread. In this moment, he's bringing into question God's provision. God's provision is being brought into question. Dude, you haven't eaten in 40 days. You're starving. Don't you? If God is good, then wouldn't God give you a, a nice baguette? Wouldn't God create you some Shabbat? That's fun to say. Wouldn't, wouldn't God make you some Fakasha? I've got to be careful how to say these bread names. I almost said some bad words. Um, uh, I think I've used Fakasha a few times. In, in moments of frustration. Anyway, uh, so I've definitely eaten focaccia in moments of frustration. So uh, this, is, this is a moment where the, the provision of God is being questioned, brought into question. And Jesus' response, he goes to Scripture. He goes to the Word of God. And he says, uh, in God's own words, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He is my ultimate provision. He is my only provision. He is everything. And so he puts into focus uh, the, the provision, the sufficiency of God and what matters. What, doesn't, what matters is not something superficial and temporal and natural. What matters is something that is eternal. 
and the Word was here before we were. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. It became uh, like us. It became flesh. And so that we could experience righteousness, right standing, connection with God. And so this is a, uh, a clarification of what actually really matters. It's a reminder of what, uh, what really matters. Second temptation, the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, crowd surf, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, and you will not strike your foot against a, a stone. So in this moment, he's already questioned, brought into question God's provision. In this moment, he's quoting scripture, which I, I think is ironic. He's quoting scripture to Jesus, and he's bringing into question God's protection. Does God really have your back? Because if he does, let's test that theory. Crowd surf, jump off, stage dive, go, go bungee jumping without the bungee. Just jump. Go ahead and jump. Get your back against the wrecking machine. You know what I mean? See what I mean? Uh, quoting Van Halen. All right, here we go. The devil starts quoting scripture and, 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 and brings into question the protection of God. And Jesus' response, again, quoting scripture, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he's, he's making sure that the devil understands, uh, I, God's got my back, and, uh, and you're being ridiculous, bringing into question any of this. And so here's the last temptation. I think this is the goofiest one. This is the, the most ridiculous one, but believe it or not, uh, I think this is the most meaningful one. And so the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him, we have no idea which mountain this is or if it's even a natural, could be a spiritual kind of thing. Uh, if you've seen all the nations, probably spiritual, something other than just a natural high point. Uh, a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the enemy said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Yeah, like that's going to work, right? This one's ridiculous. But what he's bringing into question here, he's already brought into question provision, protection. He's bringing into question God's promise the promise of God. And the reason I say that is, is uh, we look into a little detail here. The Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, is a little bit more um, thorough and uh, precise than Matthew. Matthew's got other things that he's trying to get across. But uh, the Gospel of Luke adds a, an important qualification to the statement. Uh, he, he, he puts it this way. This is the enemy's temptation. I will give you all this domain and its glory... For it has been handed over to me. That's an important thing to consider. Because when God created Adam and Eve, He created heaven's earth, created all the things around it, created all the things pertaining to it, and then created man, created his wife, and then gave them dominion over all of this. He said, you take care of it. Handed Adam and Eve the keys to the kingdom and said, have fun. And so when Adam and Eve fell and they gave in to sin, they gave in to the temptation that Jesus is not, they took the keys that they were given to this world 
and handed them over. That's when the Bible talks about the God of this world. Lowercase g, the God of this world. You could read that and read past it and assume it's talking about God, but you'll notice it's lowercase g, the God of this world. That is the enemy. That is Satan. That's who's being who's tempting Jesus here. Adam and Eve gave him dominion, handed over the keys. It was the worst real estate transaction in history. And then Jesus came and to reclaim the keys to this kingdom, to cancel the debt, to cancel the outstanding debt, the debt, to cancel the uh, the sin that made this accessible and necessary. He canceled that in order to reclaim. And then there's this beautiful promise in, in Psalm 2 before Jesus arrives. Ask of me, and, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's God's promise to Christ. I will give you the nations. I will give you the kingdom back. And you will rule and reign over it. But... Here's where the temptation comes into play. The only way Jesus is going to gain access to the keys of this kingdom to reclaim his rightful throne is through the worst torment, punishment, and death imaginable. It is through scorn, ridicule, humiliation, and the beating that would kill any of us in a moment. And what the enemy is offering is certainly about his own ego and pride, but, but the path that he's laying out is you can bypass the suffering. You can, you can bypass the suffering. And we know it's intense because Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane said, if there's any other way to do this, I'm, I'm open to some ideas. Can we please go around what's about to take place? So we know it's severe. The enemy's saying, you can bypass all that. In fact, you can bypass all the stuff that you're about to do, all the time you're about to spend, all the heartbreak you're about to experience, all the rejection. The Bible talks about uh, that humanity throws him away like a stone. They reject him. If you want to bypass the ridicule, the scorn, the doubters, the naysayers, the torment, the, the the pain, the suffering, then let's just, we'll just do the real estate transaction right here. Bow to me and I'll give, it, I'll give you the keys. And Jesus said no. In fact, this is the, path, the part where he says, go, get out of here. It's not going to work. You shall worship the Lord your God only. Serve him only. And so Jesus chose the, the difficult path. He, he didn't take the, the, the fast track. He didn't take the easy, the, the path of least resistance. He didn't take the easy way out. He said, I'm going to walk through the valley of shadow of death. Thank you very much. Jesus' endurance through all three of these tests is uh, a, a shining reaffirmation of his dedication, commitment, and obedience to the will of God. He's in this to win this. And he's making sure that we know this. That he's not a fair-weather savior. He's not going to, when the going gets tough, he's not going to Google easier options. He's, he's with us through all of it. 
And he's willing to do all of this for us. And so this shows his dedication to his commitment to fulfilling the perfect will of God on earth. But it also, at the same time, is 100% for your personal benefit. He goes through this. The, The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness for temptation for you. And you might wonder why, in terms of, apart from just a general sense of fulfilling the will of God, it's actually way more personal than that. It's actually way more intricate than that. He endures these trials because you and I will continually endure trials, temptations, and points of testing continually, every day, always. You and I will face tests every day of our life. Our patience will be tested, which uh, did not go well for me this morning with our TV screens. Um, Our integrity will be tested. Our dedication, our commitment, our loyalty. Our faith will be tested. And that's the thing that's been tested in me more than anything else over the last three years. I had a conversation with a friend last week and I said... I used to think I had faith five years ago. And then the last couple years showed me clearly I didn't have really any. Whatever that was, that was not faith. And you know what? In five more years, I'm going to look back and say, I thought I had faith then. Faith is not something we do. It's a gift from God. He gives everyone a measure of faith. faith. The faith that we trust God with, we are saved by grace through faith, that faith is not something we conjure up or work on. It is, it is itself a gift from God. So over our lifespan, we're learning to trust that faith that He freely gives us. Lean on it. Our faith is tested. Our faithfulness is tested. Our commitment to this thing. We are tested continually, always. And sometimes we fail colorfully i was uh i I was thinking about this this past week uh i was driving uh east brander to lee highway and uh, over where the airport was there was a store and if you grew up here if you're around my age uh there was a store called richway do you guys remember richway it was across the street there was hills uh there too so it was like this this uh, in anchors hoagies all is like my favorite place in Chattanooga to be was over there. And uh, racks, we used to go to racks and get roast beef sandwiches and a cookie. Oh man, life was good. And so uh, I remember we went to Richway one time. I was with my mom and my sister and uh, we were there and I immediately, I was like, can we go to the toy section? Because Richway was like a department, it's like a Target, but maybe a little bit more discounted. And, uh, and so I, I love Richway, always had great experiences at Richway. Like every time I walked in there, I was low to the ground. I had a low center of gravity. I was a little boy, and I'd always kind of go up under the clothes racks, and I'd find cash. It was a theme. And every time we went, my mom's like, you found another 20? I'm like, nee. And this is my mom, full of integrity, a woman of virtue, God's favorite Proverbs 31 woman in the history of the world, Sharon Stapleton. And she would say, Christopher, we're going to turn it in. I'm like, Mom, they pocket it. I knew it. At six years old, I knew they pocketed it. They're not going to save it for me. 
annoying kid, write it on an envelope. You see this little hand over the counter, I found this 20. Like, oh, okay, we'll put it away. You come back in a week, and if no one claims it, <laughs> she claimed it that day. And so uh, I felt like Richway owed me. That's my justification today. So I'm in the uh, toy aisle. My mom wasn't around. She would often leave me in public places <laughs> on purpose, hoping someone else would take me. Um, so I'm, I'm in the toy aisle, and Kenner, which is, uh, thank God for the toy company Kenner, they, they gave us some great toys. They released a toy line for the Ghostbusters, and it uh, was based on the cartoon, and uh, the Ghostbusters. And I had, gotten, I had got one. I got Peter Venkman, the action figure, and it came with like a, uh, a proton pack, and, uh, and it came with a little ghost to bust. And um, something that they also released was a little tub, and they called it ectoplasm. It was slime, which all the parents loved in their carpet. And so I got, uh, they had the slime, and I'm, I'm sitting there in Richway holding the slime, looking at it, and, and knowing that inside of the slime is another little bitty ghost. They gave you a bonus ghost. And I'm like, I've only got one ghost, and I'm tired of busting him, to be honest with you. There's only so many times you can bust the same ghost. This would be a new ghost. And probably at that point, my mom already made it clear, I'm not buying you nothing today. And so here's the devil standing before me. Hey, little Christopher. Richway owes you. Take the ghost. Just take it. Reach in the slime, take the ghost, put it in your little boy pocket, and just take him home. I, uh, I did not resist the test that day. I failed miserably, and I had a ghost in my pocket. So we got home, and I had so many toys. It was ridiculous how many toys I had. Um, my parents still walk funny because they step on all these Legos and everything. So they have, a, they have a limp, like Jacob did, wrestling with God, but theirs is from Lego. So they, they, they had just thousands upon thousands, as far as the eye could see, toys, action figures. My mom walked in, and I was playing with the action figures, and she looks down at this little bitty incidental ghost about the size of a quarter. She's like, where'd you get that? So while the devil's tempting me, the Holy Spirit's talking to my mom telling her, how, hopefully told her how much she failed raising me. It's your fault. I didn't raise myself. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm joking. And uh, it was a whole ordeal. But here's the point. Sometimes we fail the test. And truthfully, if we're going to be honest with each other, if we're leaning on, relying on our own personal strength to pass the test that we face in life, failure is get used to it. In fact, I would say we're always going to fail. Jesus passed this test because we can't. Back to Hebrews chapter 2, 17 and 18. He had been made like his brethren, like us, in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make appropriation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We are continually tempted, tested. We're we're to the point where life is a big enough test where you and I have, whether we acknowledge this and even know this or not, we've become risk-averse. We've become risk-adverse. We resist the doing tough things. We'll resist putting ourselves out there. We'll resist doing things that are difficult and outside of our comfort zone because we are so paralyzed by the fear of failing yet another test. So we are becoming, as a culture, less and less willing to do tough things, to do hard things, to do things that make us uncomfortable. And dare I say, that is the life of faith. The life of faith, if there's one word I could use to describe it, I would say it is uncomfortable. Have you ever watched Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the best of the Indiana Jones movies? There's no conversation. It just is. It's a fact. There's that point where there's this this, uh, invisible bridge, and at one point, Indy, you named a dog Indiana. Yes. So Indiana has to put his foot out and just go for it. He throws sand on it on the way back so that he remembers, oh yeah, there's a bridge there. But he has to take that, and even in the movie, it says it calls it a leap of faith. Imagine if that's every step that you ever take. You don't know if the ground's going to meet you. That's a life of faith. It's Peter in the boat. It's, it's, a life of faith is continually uncomfortable. Outside of our comfort zone. In fact, if it was within our comfort zone, it would not be faith. Faith is not required. And the Bible says, live by it and walk by it. The Bible says that we are actually supposed to walk by faith rather than sight. Which means knowing, understanding, wrapping our minds around, comprehending... We live in this kind of realm of understanding and controlling, and the truth is, none of us are in control. At some point, every knee bows, every tongue confesses, we're all going to have to get there eventually. If we don't step out of the boat, we're going to get nudged out of the boat. This, Jesus walked through this temptation so that we, by faith, could endure the tests that this life throws at us. In fact, take some ground, take some territory, step out in faith, and do some risky business. Do some difficult things because we know God is faithful. In, this, in the testings, and I, I won't go through them again, but just if you remember the three that happened, Jesus was tempted to basically exercise his power in turning stones into bread. And in that moment, 
He chooses not to exercise His power because He's identifying with us in our weakness. The second testing, He's he's encouraged to exercise His invulnerability. He's like Wolverine. Nothing's going to happen to you. You can step off this thing and you're protected. You're bubble wrapped. But he, he resists that temptation and he's identifying with our fragility. Because as tough as we pretend to be, we are all pretty fragile. Life hurts. I put on a face as much as I can, but I'm going to be honest with you. Life hurts. It's tough. It's heartbreaking. And finally, Jesus refuses to bow to the enemy, even though the payoff is pretty amazing. The Bible says that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but yet forfeit his soul? He's identifying with our lust for more. He's identifying us with us in that place where we are always tempted by this big idea of more. If I had that, and we would even compromise for those things that we crave, lust for. And Jesus is resisting that as us and for us. Back to Hebrews, and I'll close with this. Hebrews 4 speaks to this idea of temptation one more time. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. I'm going to read that one more time. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, without failing, without giving in. Therefore, because Jesus has endured all temptation and can identify with us in all those temptations, because of that, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus endured this temptation. He then went on, as we all know, and we'll get to over the next several weeks, he went on to the cross where he he hung, bled, beaten, shamed, ridiculed, And the Bible says that in that moment, he became our sin. He became a physical manifestation, personification of sin for you and I. And then that sin was put to death in Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus was resurrected, brought back to new life. So that we're not just these empty, vacant, void, you better mind your P's and Q's because you're, you're, you're basically out on, on bail. You're out on bond. No. The certificate of debt has been canceled. And now you are free. 
to live life as you only hoped to dream of. You are now resurrected to new life. You, you are Jesus with skin on as he is, so are you. Who he is shines through who you are. The goodness of God is on full display. The Bible says we're salt and light. We're refreshing aspects and elements to this world that is broken and, and so in need. Jesus walked through that, that temptation because every single day our identity and our connection with our God is going to be called into question. We live in a world that is desperately trying to shove all of us into a, a, an arena of humanism where I am God, where I am in control, where the world revolves around me. People talk, and I've had these conversations, people talk about God as if he has fallen and they are good. If God's so good, then he should do what I would do. The pride in that. But what's happened is we've elevated self to God's status which is the original fall in the garden. Man substituting himself for God. And because that was such a fall, and because that broke everything, God made everything good. Man broke every good thing that God made. But because God's so good, Jesus came to earth in order to unbreak what we broke. Man's been substituting himself for God, so God said, I'll substitute myself for man. I'll take your place. So now we do have this path to righteousness, to be like Christ, but it's not in our own strength and our own path. It is only by way of Jesus. There's no way to the Father but through the Son. He's the way, He's the truth, He is the life. Now we are not fighting because of Christ. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from it. The battle's won. Jesus endured the test for you. So Chris, what if I fail the test? What if I'm tempted? What if I, what if I break my own commitment? What if I break my own promise? What if, I, what if my integrity, if, if I fail in that place? You will. I promise you. I don't know much, but I know that you're going to fail. Thanks, Chris. I know this even more than that. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail dramatically and colorfully. I might steal another ghost. I don't know. But we we don't proclaim our own strength. We proclaim his. And then through everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Jesus' love isn't going anywhere. And over time, it begins to change us from the inside out. We are becoming new creations in Christ Jesus. So not only is the temptations going to the temptation, I'm not talking about boom, 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 boom. I'm talking about the, the temptations, the bad ones, not the good ones. Not only are they going to stop working on us over time as much as they do, They're going to start working on us as much as they do because we're going to lose our taste for it because we're being transformed from the inside out. And so suddenly, that doesn't appeal to you anymore. 
So what Christians are famous of, of doing is trying to make people holy and uh, more presentable before God by addressing the outside. Clean up, stop it, no. We address the fruit of behavior expecting the tree to change. So we're like tree surgeons. We go out there and we do intricate surgery on the fruit of the tree thinking it's going to make the tree well. And what the gospel does, that, that was the law. The law tries to address human behavior, the fruit of human behavior, and it tries to address that in order to make you holy. But what the gospel does, it gets to the heart. It starts to address the roots of the tree. Where are you rooted? Where are you grounded? The kind of tree you are. We just read that in the last chapter. John, bring, John the Baptist brings that into question. You'll, you'll know each other by their fruit. The good tree is the tree that is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. It begins to bear a different kind of fruit because it's, it's after something else. It is something else. And that's the Holy Spirit at work in us by the grace of God, bringing forth sanctification, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so the reminder in all of this is not, hey, I should be further, I should do better, I need to be better than I am, I need to be more faithful, I need to dedicate more time, yada, yada, yada. We need to, we need to be reminded whose we are because that's what's called into question if you are the son of god you are his beloved son remember the last chapter you are his beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased that's where the strength lies that's where solidity lies when the winds of this world blow the strongest place we can be is at rest with who our Savior is and the fact that he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the, that's the solid rock where we stand. Christ alone. That's it. It's his finished work that saves us, restores us, revolutionizes our lives, gives us what we need in the face of trials because he's done it for us already. The last chapter was about a trailblazer who went before Christ, a forerunner. This chapter is about a forerunner that went before us. In fact, passed every test for us and then credits us with that righteousness.